We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Taipei-based journalist Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing the KMT planning to re-establish its presence in the United States with the opening of a new liaison office there. The Taiwan People's Party holding its first national convention in Taipei, where Chairman and Taipei Mayor Kerwin just stressed that it's not a one-man party based solely on his political celebrity. Premier Su Jung Chung announcing a development plan for Pingdong County involving extending the high-speed rail services there and also the establishment of a science park. The latest on the food panda offending Taichung Duck restaurant and police in Kaohsiung seeking to name and shame traffic offenders using LED lights to flash up their number plates. But we'll begin with the presidential office describing the decision by US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to remove restrictions on contact between officials from the two countries as being a reflection of the solid partnership between the two sides. Now, Pompeo announced an end to decades of what he called self-imposed restrictions introduced by the US Department of State to regulate interactions between US diplomats and other officials and their counterparts in Taiwan last Saturday. The presidential office says the announcement was made in a bid to regularise interactions between American and Taiwanese officials. And the government was also jumping in joy earlier this week as it expected a visit by US Ambassador to the United Nations, Kelly Craft. Officials were busy saying the main purpose of that visit was to discuss how to reinforce the US government's support for Taiwan's international participation. However, that joy was rather short-lived after the US State Department announced on Wednesday morning Taiwan time that Craft's visit had been cancelled due to the need to complete a smooth and orderly transition process in Washington. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs described that cancellation as being regrettable, as did the presidential office. In a statement released after the US State Department announced the sudden cancellation of Kraft's trip, the foreign ministry said that it fully understands and respects the decision and still welcomes her to visit Taiwan at an appropriate time in the future. Kraft, though, did hold a video call with President Tsai Ing-wen later in the week and speaking during that meeting, Kraft said the United States will always stand with Taiwan as friends and partners standing shoulder to shoulder as pillars of democracy. Well, there we go, Ross. We had Mike Pompeo lifting the restrictions on official visits and official talks, and then we had a cancellation of the first of those said official visits. Well, slow down there, Gavin. As you know, the guidelines that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo nullified last Saturday, uh, the United States had largely departed from those guidelines anyway. And uh, the nullification of those guidelines are are really irrelevant to whether or not Kraft or other U.S. government officials because uh, visit because other government officials have visited Taiwan, uh, even with those guidelines nominally in place. But again, uh, whether it's here in Taipei or uh, in Washington, D.C. or other places, for the most part, uh, not entirely, but but for the most part, uh, the U.S. government had started to depart from those guidelines, and that's why we do see uh, very public interactions between the Taiwan and U.S. governments uh, in recent years, certainly a lot more in the past four years under the Trump administration and to a lesser extent uh, under Obama and, and George W. Bush. Uh, I, I think these guidelines were certainly more strictly enforced in, in the years after derecognition when the United States was probably more concerned about uh, Chinese reaction to any level of, of uh, interaction between Taiwan and the U.S. So certainly um, the Bush or, or 
uh, George H.W. Bush and, and Reagan before him, and then Clinton. Uh, certainly, Clinton was <laughs> Clinton administration seemed to be a big fan of uh, these kinds of restrictions on interactions. But again, over the past twenty years, largely uh, you know, over time, slowly, uh, really, the U.S. wasn't following the letter or the, the spirit of, of those guidelines. Anyway, uh, you know all, all that that uh, rather uh, flowery, or if I wanted to be a bit rude, I'd say verbose uh, descriptions of of Kraft's visit. Uh, I think that that was somewhat unrealistic, just given the realities of of where we are in the timeline. Uh, yeah, I think uh, everyone around the world has heard that Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January twentieth. So, having the outgoing U.S. ambassador to the United Nations at this very late date in the Trump administration's term discuss uh, Taiwan's participation. Uh, Let's be frank, this was just a public relation exercise. And Ralph, do you think possibly the government made such a big to-do of it, it got cancelled and the government was well left with egg on its face? I I would follow what what Ross just said about this being a public relations exercise. If you go back to 2018, we had the Taiwan Travel Act, which was supposed to encourage the very kind of visits that Pompeo um, permitted on uh, over the, the past weekend by lifting the bans. So uh, on top of that, we had um, a senior-level visitor in August. We had another one in September. We were about to have one this week um, who, who canceled. Um, and these people come and go. China gets upset. There's no substantive change in policy. And I don't think – I think the Taiwan government has – does play it up for for you know domestic public consumption, but I don't think that um, Kelly Kraft, um, you know, her inability to come is going to have any major impact on how people here see the government or however anybody else sees the government. Um, everybody knows that um, yeah, Trump has got a you know just short of a week left, something like that. So um, you know. And Kraft can come as a former diplomat at some point in the future. Taiwan is certainly well known for having lots of former luminaries come and um, give speeches and meet with the officials here. But of course, Ralph, this this Kraft visit led to a bit of a chasm between the KMT and the DPP because, of course, the KMT chairman Johnny Jung Johnny Jung actually was like he while he said Kraft's cancellation case cancellation was understandable, he also had a bit of a poke at the government, saying maybe now it could put more effort into ensuring continuing stable, sustainable, and substantial developments of bilateral relations with the Joe Biden administration. Yeah, well. You know, KMT is an opposition party. Uh, as you had asked just a moment ago, does this throw egg on the government's face here? I think the KMT was trying to throw an egg, and it, maybe it broke somewhere, but it didn't have a lot of impact. I don't think that um, the Johnny Jung's voice is going to carry a whole lot of weight in terms of what the uh, what the Thai administration does or what the Biden administration does. Regardless, the Thai administration has said, and I believe they will do, um, form the best relations they can with the Biden administration. They understand it's going to take them some time. Biden has a world's worth of priorities, which are going to start at home with COVID. So she's going to wait a while. I believe she understands that. And of course, the DPP, Ross, Chen Ding-Fei, actually claimed the KMT should bear some considerable responsibility for the cancellation of Kraft's trip, as it has subjected the visit to endless criticisms. That's a bit overboard, maybe. Well, for all the KMT's historical wrongdoings and evils going back, oh, about 100 or more years, uh, you know, 
losing the Civil War, martial law in Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't think they are responsible for the fact that the Trump administration has but a few days left and the timing of this uh, trip was quite peculiar. And uh, Secretary of State Pompeo also canceled his own trip to Europe. Uh, may have been because uh, some European leaders indicated they had no interest in meeting him. Uh, it might also have been because of the realities of doing a smooth transition. Arguably, the Trump administration did delay implementing uh, transition work. Uh, that That's certainly been a topic of conversation in the United States. Uh, but just to follow up on or expand on something Ralph mentioned about uh, what Johnny Jiang says is not going to have an effect on how the Thai administration conducts its, its foreign policy or, or how the U.S. conducts its policy with regard to Taiwan, I think we should also keep in mind that it probably has no effect on public opinion as well. So public opinion would have welcomed this visit. I think the public also recognizes that uh, it it was a public relations exercise that would have no substantive effect on Taiwan's ability to participate in international organizations in the coming months. Uh, But also, given the the Kuomintang's, KMT's a really weak position in Taiwan politics right now. I don't think the public is very responsive to something that, or a criticism that comes from Chairman Jiang or or, uh, Kuomintang legislators or um, even Ma Ying-jeou, former President Ma, who who was also uh, quite vocal in the media in in pointing out, uh, for lack of a better word, I'm probably uh, paraphrasing him, but he also pointed out repeatedly that this was really a, a public relations exercise. And of course, Ralph, the KMT this week also faced accusations of being anti-American. Yeah, I don't think that deviates too much from what they've ever done. Anti-American would be a bit of a stretch. They've always had a, you know, a thing for 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 China um, because of their history and because of their modern. Uh, their, you know, their current policies, um, and I think as part as an extension of that, they have moments when they they speak as if they're anti-American, anti-Japanese. So that's, this is part of what they are and what they're supposed to say. Uh, I think, given the that we know for a fact uh, that so many Gobi Don politicians have close personal relationships with the United States, they live there, they studied there, uh, many of them speak English uh, to varying abilities. Uh, you know, the, to say that they're anti-American is, I, I think, a, a mischaracterization. You know, they're they're going to do what what opposition parties do, such as try to uh, to use your phrase, Gavin, throw some egg at the government's face. Uh, but to say that they're anti-American, uh, with all due respect to the legislator, I disagree with her. And staying in related news, where the KMT on Wednesday of this week announced that it's planning to re-establish its presence in America with the opening of a new liaison office there. Now, according to the KMT, the aim of the office is to strengthen ties with the US government as well as officials in said government and also establishments in America such as think tanks. Now KMT officials say an office team is being formed to prepare the groundwork for the establishment of the office in Washington DC but the KMT hasn't put any time frame on when it could open citing the coronavirus pandemic for that reason. Now the KMT closed its original liaison office in the United States in 2008 shortly after the election of Ma Ying-jeou as president and the responsibility for coordinating the party's interactions 
relations with Washington then was transferred to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But needless to say, Maing Joe lost the 2016 election. And, well, that's it. The KMT had no voice in America, Ross. Uh, well, to borrow Ralph's earlier comment, uh, the Biden administration has a number of other priorities uh, chit-chatting with the Kuomintang when and if the Kuomintang actually sets up an office is definitely not going to be one of them. Obviously, the Kuomintang's brand image is damaged in the eyes of uh, American politicians and American policymakers. Uh, uh, over the past uh, 12 years now, uh, you know, eight, eight years of, of uh, uh, my administration, four, uh, five years, I guess, so 13 years, of uh, President Tsai's administration. You know, the Kuomintang has had people in the United States. I mean, they do have uh, um, you know, people from the Kuomintang who've spent time in the U.S. working at, at think tanks or on short-term fellowships. They do have Kuomintang supporter uh, you know, party organization in the U.S. So there have been people who've been purporting to speak uh, for the Kuomintang and also you know, former chairman like like uh, Eric Julie Lund periodically goes to the U.S., uh, so it's not like they haven't been there entirely. Uh, I think their biggest problem is that the, they don't communicate their positions very well when they interact with uh, Americans or English language speaking media. But they seem to think they know how to do it best. And uh, that's why their brand image is so damaged. So, Ralph, of course, the DPP has long had an office in America. And, of course, it also has FAPA if it wishes to talk to other officials, which, of course, the KMT hasn't had. So they, one could argue the DPP has been outclassing the KMT in its connections and communications with American officials. I, I would imagine that goes back to earlier days when the DPP got started, obviously, as an opposition party and had to rely on whatever mechanisms it had to, to speak out. And it's always valued relations with the United States as well as Japan. So, And um, quite a few people in Washington are sympathetic to the DPP cause. So it, um, it helps perhaps to have, it helps the, the, the party and the government today at this point um, to get all these offices set up and to uh, increase their clout in, in Washington. So I, I I, w- I would imagine basically it's it's historical. It'll continue too. Uh, the KMT is probably going at it now because they think they have a better chance with Biden. He's a, a new president. Um, Trump was um, seen as a Thai supporter, so this is a, a new opportunity for them. And I don't think it'll change the DPP's presence in Washington or that of any of their sympathetic advocacy groups, PhDs, think tanks, and all that. Uh, I just wouldn't be very optimistic that this will achieve anything. It's certainly not going to be the the engine that gets them reelected in 2024's presidential or legislative UN election, or and it's quite irrelevant to the local elections in in 2020. And uh, uh, frankly, I don't see how it would even help Johnny John get reelected in the upcoming chairman election that's going to occur this year. 
And staying with politics, but talking about another political party now, and the Taiwan People's Party had its first national convention in Taipei this past Sunday. And speaking at the event, party chairman and Taipei Mayor Ke Wenzhe stressed that the TPP will continue to put its policy of seeking an inclusive society and national governments and will not adopt double standards or seek ineffective boycotts. Now, Ke cited the rift between the DPP and the KMT over the issue of pork containing ractopamine as examples of double standards and ineffective boycotts. He also dismissed long-running claims that the Taiwan People's Party only exists based on his own political celebrity, telling delegates that it's not a one-man party. And he also took the time to insist that the TPP will not limit itself to being solely an opposition party, but is Ross preparing to become the ruling party? Uh, what can you say other than it's, it's kind of like baby steps here, right? Uh, I don't think the public... Uh, as of now, as of yet, really understands what this party stands for, other than that it is America's political party. And America, uh, to be fair to him, you know, kind of does stand for what you mentioned, uh, good government policy. Oh, people accuse him of, of being uh, kind of a unificationist, pro-China. I, I think that's ridiculous. That's just an unfair criticism of the mayor. I, I think, again, he does stand for good policy, uh, and I think that's what helped him get elected and reelected. Uh, but how does that transition into what the party stands for, as opposed to looking at what he's done in his uh, uh, six years as mayor? Uh, I think that that's still unclear to to the public, and uh, they haven't fixed that yet. And Ralph, of course. Kerwin Jers, celebrity, doesn't make the party, but like Ross there pointed out, it does technically make the party. Yeah, I'm a little leery of this whole thing. We've seen other parties come and go in Taiwan that form around or revolve around a single kind of iconic leader slash founder. Um, and I guess it's natural for them either they have a they have a falling out with one of the, the, the major parties or they, they're independent to start with and they gain a following, so they need to do something to consecrate that and move on to some other higher level, I, I suppose it would help uh, Mayor Kuh to run for higher office at some point if he wants to. Um, like Ross said, I don't think there's a, you know, a really strikingly obvious policy agenda that you can really hang your hat on and say this is what they stand for, this is how they're going to move Taiwan forward <clears throat> or do things in a way that the other parties aren't doing it. And of course, traditionally... In the media, the TPP, Ross, have sort of sided more with the KMT than the DPP. Uh, This is, again, what leads to the periodic accusations that uh, the mayor is is too nice uh, to China. He doesn't stand sufficiently for Taiwan identity. But uh, to be fair to America, I I think the genesis of why that that sometimes happens, why it comes across as as, uh, he's more partial to the Guomindang is simply that he does see his role and maybe his party as uh, standing for good governance. And if he thinks that the DPP, uh, whether it's in the legislature or uh, the executive uh, branch of government, are proposing or executing policies that are bad or executing policies in in an inefficient or sloppy way, he's going to say something. Uh, The Gomi Dog, as we've been discussing with other issues in this show, they're going to criticize simply because they're they're trying to be the 
the opposition and and fulfill that role. I think we could agree they don't always do it well, uh, but uh, it's it's just a natural meeting of of, of uh, views, whether it's just to be uh, op- opposing for the sake of opposition or genuinely questioning. Uh, the efficiency or, or the uh, you know, benefits of a government policy. Uh, so again, I, I think that criticism is also unfair to, uh, unfair to the mayor, I, just simply because you say, oh, government, you're not doing something well. And the Guomindang saying, government, you're bad, we don't like you. And, and then people say, oh, well, they agree. I mean, that's that's a bit of a shallow analysis. And Ralph, do you think that Kerwin Joe will have to take his show on the road, so to speak, in a couple of years before his party tries to run the, 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 to become the ruling party? Because, of course, outside Taipei, not many people know much about him except what they've read in the newspapers or seen on the television. Yeah, I do. I think he would need to do a lot of, um, make a lot of connections in the, in the South where people aren't used to him or his style of doing things. His party would need to go beyond governance. I don't, especially in the South, I don't think there's any, you know, uprising against uh, the DPP at all. It's a you know very supportive in that way for for you know since the DPP was created really. So to go down there and say that they're an alternative um, to that party and the, what they stand for would would take a lot of work, and it would he'd have to say something that's more credible than just you know we need better governance. Um, so take it on the road and you know form a a, a proper message that will stick in an environment where the ruling party is very popular. And, of course, Ross, he hasn't got long to do that. Technically, not long at all after he gets... He can't run for mayor again, and then... Gavin, it's, uh, well, yeah, he's term limited in yeah. Taipei, but it sounds like when you said take it on the road that you, you're, you're recommending that he run for mayor in, 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 in Kaohsiung in, in 2022. I mean, take his Taiwan People's Party show on the road. But, I mean, he doesn't have long to do it, Ross, does he, if they're hoping to become the ruling party? Well, the challenge there... And he he sort of bumped up against that uh, in in the the most recent election cycles is his term will end in December 22. The national election is uh, 14 months later. It's in January 2024. The the mistake I think he made in the last cycle was he was kind of sort of thinking about running for president and and he let that go on um, all the way into the, the summer months of 2019. So he was reelected in, in November 2018. And then there was all the speculation he was going to run for president. He was doing okay in the polls. It was kind of like split you know, 28-33 between Tsai, uh, Gomindang candidate, whether it was going to be Hong Yu at the time. We didn't know for sure who it would be. And Merica. So the, the polls were all close. And then Guo Taiming was thinking of running as KMT. He lost the primary. Then he was going to maybe run as an independent. Merica was kind of working with, with Guo Taiming. And then he didn't make that decision until you know, the final decision until late in the summer. And frankly, it was too late for him to run for president at that point. Uh, I would say, hey, America, if you're listening, you, you, if you plan to run for president, just announce it as early as possible. Don't don't step uh, you know, wait for your term as mayor to end and then wait three, four or five months uh, into the middle of uh, 2023 and do it. So if you want to take that show on the road, as Gavin suggested, you want to uh, be a credible candidate for president. I think you should announce that as early as possible. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Oh. 
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and Premier Su Jung Chung this week announced a development plan for Pingdong County that involves extending high-speed rail services there and also the establishment of a science park. The moves are part of the central government's efforts to boost the competitiveness of southern Taiwan. Now the Premier says under the plan, the high-speed rail will be extended from Kaohsiung to Pingdong and a 273-hectare special zone around the new station will become a hub for technology development. Now according to Science Minister Wu Jung Jong, the extended high-speed rail line is scheduled to begin operating in 2029 and means the development of the science park will be supported by a more convenient transportation network. And speaking to reporters this week, Wu said that the science park will focus on areas such as agriculture, health and software engineering. Now bidding for construction of the 17.5-kilometre high-speed rail line that will link Kaohsiung's Zhuoying station to a station in Pingdong is set to begin in April. And the Ministry of Transport is saying that the high-speed rail service will reduce the travel time between Taipei and Pingdong from the current 124 minutes to 104 minutes and no transfers will be required. So, Ralph, Pingdong's going to get a high-speed rail on a big old glitzy science park. Yeah, I would take the two one by one. The high-speed rail will be obviously an advantage for people living in Pingdong to, to come up north and for people here in this area to um, go to Pingdong for tourism, which is probably the biggest draw, um, you know, when you look at it from a Taiwan-wide or a regional perspective. There's the Kanding National Park and uh, along coastlines and mountains and all that. So um, that will be helpful, as high-speed rail would be helpful almost anywhere. Um, the science park could be more problematic. I think the government here is and no matter who's operating the government, they're good at setting up these parks and creating some basic infrastructure. Everybody's happy and makes money and dust is flying and things are being built and it's another happy day. But then when it comes to filling the park, um, they're going to be competing with their own kind. There's a science park in Tainan. There's a, obviously a big one in, in Shinju, among others. Um, the only hope that it might stand would be if they if they cut costs, if it's really cost-effective and close to the high-speed rail, close to some kind of port access, that might help. And it might help if there's if there's this continued demand for re-onshoring among the Taiwanese investors who are fed up with China. Um, you know, if, if, if these incentives to come back continue and, and mushroom into something more, then they would presumably need more space to relocate. Of course, Ross, there's been some questions about the high-speed rail from going from Kaohsiung to Pingdong, whether it will be financially viable. It won't be, but uh, like a lot of infrastructure, uh, not just in Taiwan, but other places around the world, it comes with a healthy amount of government subsidy. You know, it's kind of the nature of building highways and, and, and railways. Uh, you know, is this the best way to spend taxpayer money? No, you could probably give a subsidized bus ticket to everyone in in uh, Pingdong to get to the high-speed rail station in Kaohsiung if they really need to go to Taipei. Um, there's also the environmental damage that uh, this will inevitably cause as they, they build the railway. But again, that's kind of the price of building, building infrastructure. Uh, this is probably for for uh, the DPP, uh, you know, just a good way to solidify voter support in, in southern Taiwan. Uh, good time to announce it now with the local elections uh, you know, less than two years uh, away. Uh, but uh, is this really going to be good for the economy? Is it the best way to spend infrastructure money? Uh, probably not. And what about the, the special zone of the science park? Uh, 
I think they're calling it a science park, but the things you mentioned are not necessarily going to be very high tech. Uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see if any company uh, says they're going to build a semiconductor fab there. Uh, but you know, if it's going to be more things along the lines of agriculture related, like you 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 mentioned, there there might be some synergies with with industry in Pingdong, but uh, building a or rebuilding an ecosystem of industry there, uh, there, there's a lot of challenges. Ralph mentioned some of them, such as port access. Uh, I, I just wouldn't be optimistic that Pingdong could, could uh, replicate that. And, of course, there's also this issue that they're going to build the science park or the, the, the special zone around the high-speed rail station. And, of course, ever since they built the high-speed rail, the local governments have been touting the areas around the high-speed rail station. Well, that, that, that the key point here, Gavin, is who knew about this announcement and did they buy any land around the station? I was going to say, <laughs> Ross, if you go to certain stations, the high-speed rail stations, such as the Tainan station, for example, the government in Tainan has been trying to develop stuff around that station since the station opened, and it's still pretty much desolate area uh but but uh, some of the stations do have a lot of development around them and uh, along the line in other parts uh yeah i think again this just shows the things that we've been discussing in this segment that uh, sometimes the infrastructure planning lacks uh, an overall vision sometimes it's driven by uh political considerations and it's not necessarily very cost effective as well uh, w- whether that's uh you know as ralph discussed uh, you're, you're really taking something away or you're, you're, you're competing with an ex- existing parks instead of building them out uh, wasting money uh, you know, when there are other efficient ways to to solve uh, maybe what might be a non-existent transportation issue uh, and then you know, inconsistent land development uh, around the various stations along uh, the high-speed rail line uh, so it's just more of the same but uh, you know what's going to come next Gavin is uh, extending the line further. So whether it's uh, extending it on the north side to to Elon or uh, extending it further north from Pingdong, once it, that, that extension is finished, uh, I'm sure in a few years, the three of us will be having another conversation here on Taiwan this week about you know a further north extension from the Pingdong station or a further south extension from the Elon station. And of course, Ralph, there's also an issue in Pingdong with it's losing its population. Do you think the government is thinking of building the science park, building the high spirit, and maybe more people will move there? I hadn't heard that rationale. I think it's probably losing its, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine it's losing the population because it's primarily an agricultural county. They're still reliant on, you know, pumping their own groundwater in a lot of places. Um, if you're not a fish farmer or a coconut grower, and if you're not, you know, making money off of Kanding or something like that, then there's not a whole lot to do there economically. Um, I, and I suspect that's why people are moving north. And you could create a few jobs by creating a successful science park if it is successful um, but I don't think it's going to be have that mass impetus to keep people from from leaving um, on another point you raised I wanted to say if if the um, if they can tag team it if they can uh, actually acquire land and sell some of it to companies near the future high-speed rail station it's all done together at the same time then it would make a lot of sense policy-wise, if not, perhaps not cost-wise, but policy-wise, and they would avoid the mistakes that you mentioned, like around the Tainan, the HSR station, because it would be done together um, intensively to, to make it all, to put it all in the same place. 
And moving away from travel and politics to, well, it's the saga of the Taijong duck restaurant that offended a food panda delivery driver. Well, that was back in the news this week after it was revealed the eatery has a large red sign on its door hinting that it may not reopen. Now, local media outlets this week were reporting that the restaurant could be moving to a new location and also that the restaurant owner is possibly thinking of using the same name. Reports also said that the owner is also thinking about, well, donating one day's income to a worthy cause if and when he reopens. Now, the story came to light on January the 2nd after video was posted on the Facebook page of the Baoyuan Commune Citizen News Group. Now, the video showed an employee of the Fu Wang Duck Speciality Joint appear to ignore a food panda delivery driver before heading to an spleetif-laden tirade and threatening to assault the food pandy employee after she complained about the restaurant's slow service. The incident, needless to say, resulted in scores of netizens slamming the restaurant and posting rather bad reviews on the internet about it, whether they'd eaten there or not. So, Ross, you watched the video? Well, the uh, proprietor uh, you know, did say some extremely offensive things. It, it, was, it was vulgar, it was threatening. It's understandable that the delivery uh, lady was upset. She's seeking criminal charges. Uh, as we often discuss on the show, Gavin, the bar for this kind of criminal charge is pretty low. So if I insult you on the street and a whole bunch of people here, I, I, you know, I could go. I, I could be facing criminal charges should you wish to file a, a complaint. Uh, he's offered to apologize. He's faced this public, public. Uh, you know, uh, death sentence for his restaurant, frankly. Uh, but the, the young lady was also in the media saying she's going to see this all the way through. She's not willing to accept his apology and and uh, his his uh, offer of a settlement. I guess it's uh, some amount of money uh, as of now. Uh, so the, the question is going to become, you know, how far does this need to, to go on? You know, should it uh, define the life of, of the proprietor who's from the media reports, the restaurant was run by a bunch of uh, young people as well. It was an entrepreneurial uh, uh, venture for them, and uh, you know, it seemed to be doing okay until this incident. Uh, when you know, how much is enough as far as uh, you know punishment for him? I, I think we're going to continue to see that aspect of this incident discussed. Uh, it's also a good reminder that in. 2021, you know, everything is public, Gavin. Whatever you say or do, somebody's filming it. Uh, so, Gavin, don't don't lose that famous temper of yours when you're in stores or restaurants. Uh, uh, you know, someone will film it and put it on the internet and maybe even press criminal charges against you. And then, of course, Ralph, I'll face the irie of the netizens. So, of course, this incident, Ralph, does show the power of the netizens. I think that's what the story is all about. If you didn't have the video, if you didn't have the netizen. Uh, fastback that we're just talking about, then what would it be? It'd just be another just another dispute between two citizens and, you know, somebody decides to take it into the court system. It's mildly interesting to see how the judges will react if it goes that far. But overall, this is a media story. As Ross said, everything's being filmed, and you never know when some dispute you have out in public is going to pop up on the Internet. And, and then, you know, the amount of mileage that that Internet coverage gets is, is anybody's guess. And People love disputes. People love to go on and, you know, YouTube or Facebook and watch two people slugging it out, whether it's verbally or physically. It's like, hey, it's, you know, lucky it's not me. I'm sitting here at home. Everything's cool. But look at these two people. That's ridiculous. And, you know, it's just the human nature. So there you go. 
there's also an element to this, especially since we're three men. Uh, you know that that uh, the Me Too era that you know men should not talk to to women like this. It's never appropriate. And what he said was vulgar with regard to you know the females' private parts. And uh, yeah, he does deserve uh, you know some kind of punishment. You know what? But you know criminal charges or, or losing his business. You know when he's already offered to to apologize and provide a a, a settlement. Uh, you know again may, maybe we're taking this too far. But there is that important aspect as well. And you know that that perhaps that's why the, the young lady wants to see it all the way through that she's doing this. Um, you know on behalf of other women who've been spoken to this way, a very inappropriate way by men. And of course, Food Panda sided with their employee well you know, keeping in mind they're they're independent contractors right they're they're not employees we know how those platforms feel about that uh a separate topic uh but yeah they did in the very very quickly they they uh, what's what's the word now gavin deplatformed the uh the, the the restaurant so again the restaurant has has faced the loss of of their their revenue and uh they're closed and you know, looking to sublease out that location and maybe they'll reopen uh, so they they've really faced uh, significant consequences already. So you know how far does this need to go? Because of netizens. Now, if you're living Gaoshung, you might face other consequences from the police there, as the police in Gaoshung are seeking to name and shame traffic offenders using LED lights. Now, apparently, the idea is to put these big LED lights on the roads, the sides of the roads, or wherever the signs are, and if an errant driver does something inane, stupid or breaks a traffic law, the number plate of the said vehicle will flash up in these big LED lights so everyone will know there's an idiot on the road. Of course, Ross, it sounds fun. It sounds amusing. It sounds, yeah, you got the silly bugger for doing that stupid thing, but maybe it has a rather serious side and it could have some problems. Well, yeah, I guess somebody might take a photo and put it on the internet and, and, and you know, say that there's Mr. Mr. So-and-so's uh, license plate number because he was uh, driving uh, in a way that violated the applicable rules. Uh, many places around the world, there, there are cameras and LED lights that uh, will flash up the, the speed of a car. And uh, very often people are speeding. So that's uh, somewhat embarrassing and perhaps uh, promotes uh, road safety because people will slow down when they're, 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 it's pointed out to them. That, that they're driving too fast. Uh, whether or not this method will be effective, uh, who knows? Uh, probably not as effective as uh, proper policing and, and police enforcing the regulations, uh, handing out fines to errant drivers who who deserve them. You know, we might get some vigilante justice with this method, which will never be, you know, it's, it's just not safe and it will never be effective in, in stopping other drivers uh, from, from uh, their errant ways. Again, I think the, the most effective way is, is good policing uh, uh, points on their license when, when they get infractions. Uh, in a way, Gavin, you know, people are going to hate me for saying this, but it sounds a bit like uh, the social credit system in China would be the next step here, right? That, that we're just going to let everyone know or, or we're going to punish you in other ways because your, your, your number, your license plate number flashed up on the LED. Uh, yeah, so I'd be, I'd be a little worried about you know, this data being out there in the public space. And Ralph, so proper policing, better policing or name and shaming? Yeah, I agree that Taiwan needs better, more proactive policing. You know, 
I don't know if we need to go as far as the U.S., where you you know the cops give you give chase to cars that are just going five or ten miles over the speed limit, but something more than what they do, which is just kind of stand there and say, you know, that guy ran a red light, and this guy's double parking, like, yeah, I'm going to go check my phone again. That that's kind of modern policing from from the, the casual view of it. Whether shaming by LED lights will work, probably not. It seems to me if you're the the other drivers who are near this offender, then you would need to identify the actual car um, in that moment so that you would stay away from it or safe from whatever behavior is taking place. And this can all happen very quickly. You know, cars speed up, slow down, turn corners. So, you know, the chances are you'll see a license plate number and then a couple minutes later you'll be on a different road. So it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference. Um, so will it have any effect? Um it might be mildly embarrassing, but then um, unless Ross says it goes to the social credit system, then it probably won't have any long-term impact on any drivers. And that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.